Good morning, Grace Church. Good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Joan. I'm the associate pastor here at Grace. It is a joy and a privilege for me to share God's word with you this morning. If we could turn our Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. For those of you that don't have uh, access to your Bibles right now, um, there should be a pew, uh, blue pew Bible in front of you, and I believe uh, that it is going to be on page 393, Ezra chapter 7. Today, plot-wise, as we continue in our series, sermon series on the book of Ezra, we're going to be covering chapters 7 and 8, uh, with a particular focus, however, on uh, chapter 7. So we're going to be reading uh, from various passages in chapter 7. But let me first give you a summary of the plot line, uh, in case you haven't been following with us. Now what we found as we got to the end of of chapter 6, we find that after much opposition, uh, the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And between chapters 6 and 7, I'm not going to have a timeline up for you on the slide like Aaron likes to do, but I will say that there's uh, between the completion of the temple being rebuilt at the end of chapter 6 to the beginning of chapter 7, 60 years have passed. And there's not much given by way of the things that transpired in those uh, 60 years, but we see that that's kind of typical of Old Testament Uh, narrative literature. And so between the uh, completion of the temple and the beginning of chapter 7, we see that 60 years have passed, and the coming chapters will zero in on the person and the character of Ezra. Finally, after six chapters, uh, we get introduced to the person that's the namesake uh, of this book. And what we find in the beginning of chapter 7 is that he's in Babylonia at the time, What we find is that he is called and commissioned uh, to travel to Israel, basically to teach and to preach the law of God to the people that are going to be gathered there. And this is an important development in what God is doing in the renewal of his community uh, because Ezra is commissioned to teach the law of Moses to a people that are used to living under the laws of the king. And so in that way... Ezra is serving the purpose of what we call a modern-day preacher, right? Bringing the Word of God and, 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 and expositing it and describing what it means for the people that are living under a particular place in a particular time. And so when we get to the first half of chapter 7, we get an introduction to this character of Ezra and to his calling. And the second half of the chapter, uh, we get the king's letter. Right, King Artaxerxes and his letter of commissioning for Ezra to the task as he gives him all of the resources that he needs in order for him to complete his calling. And if you look at uh, chapter 8, we see that he sets out right, for Jerusalem uh, with his companions. And what we find again is that 60 years have passed. This is a whole new generation of God's people. And we get a picture of what it looks like for them to travel back to Jerusalem bearing gifts uh, for the new temple, right? That's in a nutshell what happens in chapter 7 and seven eight, uh, chapter 8. And so with that being said, uh, let me read for us today's passage. I'm going to be reading uh, from chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and we're going to jump down a little bit in a moment. But let's start out with uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, 
Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Ezariah, son of Marioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And next, let's jump down to verse 21 and read to the rest of the chapter, chapter 7. And this part of the commissioning letter uh, that was given to Ezra uh, to take with him. So from verse 21 uh, to the rest of the chapter. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest describes of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to hundred talents of silver, hundred cores of wheat, hundred bats of wine, hundred bats of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toil on any any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Amen. Now, what I'd like to focus on uh, for today's teaching is uh, Ezra's calling. Right? What we find in ver- uh, chapter 7 to 8 is that Ezra received this great vision right, to see the renewal of God's community and this great mission then to teach the law of God among his people. And that's what we see in the chapters, and I'd like for us to learn from these passages uh, what that tells us about our own calling uh, in our lives, right? Whatever work uh, that we find ourselves in, whatever industry that we may in, whether it's in the home 
or in the financial sector or the arts, manufacturing, right? Whatever the case may be, whatever industry that we may find ourselves in, if we are pressed, I bet that we are asking this question as well, the question of whether uh, it is that we are called to do that which we are uh, uh, part of. Right? Every day, every single day that we're working, right, we're asking the question whether it's implicitly or explicitly, we're asking the question, right, am I living out of my calling as I'm working? Right? Is there a bigger picture to what I'm doing with my work, right, beyond earning a pay, paycheck or, you know, making sure that my children stay alive or my home is orderly, right? Many of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, the answer may be, I'm not too sure, right? A job is a job is a job. But what we find from this passage is that there is a greater calling to the work that we do every single day. Right, let me give you an example of this, and I, and I just love this example. Uh, many of you may know John Coltrane, uh, who is the great uh, jazz musician, um, we know, you may know this about him, he had this experience of God in the late 1950s, and he uh, captures this experience in musical form, right, in an album called The Love Supreme, right, which I would argue may be probably one of the greatest music album of all time. And if you were to get that album in the liner notes, you remember those things, right, before the days of streaming, right, if you are to look in the liner notes of that album... Uh, here's what he says. He says, During the year 1957, I experienced, by the grace of God, a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through His grace. All praise to God. Here's what Coltrane is saying. He's saying, I had this experience of God, and at that time I felt called, right, to make this beautiful piece of music that will bring happiness to people. And he's saying, you know what, the work of my life, love supreme, I've done it. Right? And that's the kind of experience we all want, don't we, right? In our work, to have such an experience of God, right? To be given such a noble calling and to experience the satisfaction of having fulfilled that calling uh, through our work. Right? And so the question is, right, in the, doldrum, in the doldrums of our everyday life and work, right, is there such a calling that we can experience? The kind of experience that John Coltrane had. And so what I'd like to do is look at this topic of calling, especially as it pertains to our work, uh, under three headings. First, I want to look at what calling looks like. And secondly, let's take a look at how this calling is to be lived out. And lastly, what our calling points to. What the calling looks like and how it's to be lived out. And lastly, what our calling points to. Okay? Three points. But first, let's look at what calling looks like. Now, we see that in the context of what we read here in our passages today, that Ezra was called to do something great, right? The renewal of God's community through the teaching and application of God's 
word, right? It gets really, really kind of high level and spiritual. But I like for us, what, what I'd like for us to do for this point is to kind of strip down, right, all of its spiritual elements and the spiritual glamour of Ezra's calling and break Ezra's calling down into three parts. And it'll be affinity, ability, and opportunity. Affinity, ability, and opportunity. Right, so let's break it down in the next couple of minutes. Right, First, affinity. If you look at verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Right, what we find in the example of Ezra was that when it came to teaching God's word, right, the, the law of God, uh, in Israel, it wasn't a chore for him, right? It wasn't something where he was just kind of minding his own business, right? And he felt compelled to have to do his thing, do this thing. It says that Ezra had set his heart to do that. His desire was drawn to the task. He didn't have to be forced uh, to do the thing that he was being called to, right? The first element, as we look to discern what our calling looks like in light of our word, is to ask the question of, what is it that your heart is drawn to, right? What is your heart's desire? What is it that you want to do? But here's an important distinction that I need to make here, right? <clears throat> when I say this, I'm not saying we all need to kind of look inside of ourselves and asking the question of what is it going to bring me fulfillment? What is it going to bring me satisfaction, now, years ago when I was in college ministry, uh, I, I did college ministry in the city and would attract a lot of kind of really kind of ambitious students that wanted to make something of their lives and those kinds of things. And talking to a lot of them, especially underclassmen, right, their number one question for me is like, what am I called to do? What am I called to do? And for a lot of these religious students, that was very much a Christian version of what can I major in, right? Where can I intern in that's going to lead me to a career that is going to make me the most happy? But that's not the sense that we get in the case of Ezra. The, case that we, the sense that we get from Ezra is that there was a deep need that he saw, right? He has set his heart to teach the statutes of God to the people of Israel, it's been a whole generation since the temple was rebuilt, and things were kind of at a standstill. Right? There was a deep need that Ezra sensed in his heart, even while he was in Babylon, far, far away from Israel, right? that the people needed to be taught God's word. And so when we are asking the question of, right, what is our affinity? What is our heart drawn to? It's talking about, it's asking the question of what are the needs that you see in your workplace? What are the needs that you see around you that tugs at your heart? What are the needs that you see around you that speaks to you, right? Affinity. But secondly, ability. If you look at verse 6, how is Ezra described as an introduction to who he is? He's, it says that he was a scribe that was skilled in the law of Moses. He was skilled in the law of Moses. Now, that's a difficult word uh, to translate, right? Literally, it says uh, he was a scribe that was quick with the law of Moses. It's talking about the expertise that allows you to be quick-drawed, 
right, and accessing the kind of information and practice that is needed for the task. So what we find here is that Ezra was uh, educated in the law of Moses. He was quite skilled in being able to recall uh, the law and being able to apply it, right? It's presumably he must have been a great public speaker as well. And so he was called to the task. And the question that we need to ask in terms of our calling is what are the skills or expertise that God has given to you to meet the needs that you see? Again, not for the advancement of your own satisfaction or fulfillment or enjoyment, but what are the skills and expertise that God has given to you to meet the needs that you see around you? Right? That's the second element of God's calling on Israel's life. But lastly, uh, we see there's opportunity as well. Right, verse 6, it says, The king granted him all that he had asked. The king granted him all that he had asked. Now, for those of us with kind of some more spiritual lens on, right, we usually go right to the next part of that verse and say, well, you know, the king's hand was on him, but we know ultimately it was God whose hand was on him, right? And so really the king was uh, uh, en- enacting the, the plan that God had set forth. And we skip over the part that says, wait, okay, here we have a secular king who at this particular moment in time allowed Ezra to fulfill the calling that God had given to him. It's this perfect serendipitous moment in history where Ezra's desire to meet a particular need and the expertise that he had developed over time had met. The secular king just happens to commission Ezra, right, to teach the law of God to his own people miles and miles and miles away from his kingdom. And if that wasn't enough, gives him all of the resources that he needs for the task, right? This is a moment of calling that Ezra is faced with and he answers, right? And so the question that we need to ask in terms of our calling is what are the opportunities that God has given to you. Now, <clears throat> these are some of the barebone elements of discerning your calling. Now, the question is, why am I despiritualizing these elements of calling the way I just did? Right? Isn't there room for the Holy Spirit to come to you as a surprise and to lead you into a certain direction and, and to do the things that God is calling you to do? And that's certainly possible. But here's the reason why I'm pointing this out. Because what Ezra's calling in particular teaches us is that God doesn't waste a single moment of your life. What Ezra's calling teaches us is that, there is, that your life isn't just a series of meaningless events with a smattering of supernatural right? Revelations of God's will upon your life scattered throughout. And so for many of us, we are content to just clock in and clock out of our work. And when we come to church or when we have our spiritual moments, right, we say, what is God calling me to? While ignoring the fact that God is in the details of your life, in the boring kind of mundane elements of your life as well. 
right? Your life experience, your educational background, your work history, even the mistakes that you've made along the way, we need to understand, and we are taught through the example of Ezra's calling, is that God has been working through each and every single one of them to bring you into a calling that God has uniquely reserved for you. We are told in the book of Philippians that you and I, each and every one of us, we are God's workmanship, created and led in each moment of our life to do the kinds of good works that God has called us to. Right? That's what we learn from Ezra's calling. So how does that change and transform and shape the way you approach your work? You may feel like there's nothing spiritual happening when you show up to work, when you show up to your office, when you open up that laptop, but God is at work, and He is leading you to the kind of calling that He has reserved for you, affinity, ability, and opportunity. So as, as we ask the question of what does calling look like, what we find is that the extraordinary hand of God is working through your seemingly ordinary life. And asking those questions will get us closer to what God has called us to do. Okay, so that's the first point. What does calling look like? But secondly, how is this calling lived out? Now, <clears throat> from this passage, uh, I think we see that there are two realities uh, that are simultaneously true and need to be experienced in tandem as you're moving into a life uh, that is fulfilling the calling that God has given to you. And so for this, let's jump down to verses 27 to 28, towards the end of the chapter, in verse, uh, chapter 7. <clears throat> and this is Ezra in first-person uh, uh, point of view, uh, writing this out. He says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me a steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Now, this is how Ezra interprets the events that led to him going to Jerusalem, right? Fulfilling his calling. This is how Ezra sees it. He sees that on the one hand, that there is God's favor that is on him. It is God who is animating him, right? He says, God put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. And he again says, he extended to me his steadfast love. Right, he's saying all of these events that led me, led to this point where I'm able to go to Jerusalem, right, to do the thing that I want to do, the thing, to do the thing that I am uh, capable of doing, right, it was God's hand, right, God put this thing into the heart of the king, right, he extended his steadfast love to me, and so he is the one who is driving all of this, but on the other hand, Ezra also sees his own efforts, Right? Having seen God's favor on him, right, he takes courage. And then what does he say? And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Right? He's, he's recognizing that not only is God's hand on me, but now I need to put my hand to the work that God has called me to do. 
And so here's what Ezra understands about the ministry that he is about to do, the work that he is about to do. He sees it as a partnership between God and himself. Now, some of you listening may be uncomfortable with the word partnership, right? Because it's obviously God that is driving the ship. It is God who is omnipotent. He's been working throughout history. But it is a partnership nevertheless because God is a God who graciously engages his people, invites them to participate in the work of bringing the common good to bear. Right, and here's how we can think about it. Uh, <clears throat> often uh, for breakfast, I like to make pancakes. And usually here's what happens. I wake up, I'm not a morning person, and so I'm half awake, grumpy, and just not in a good mood, and I, you know, sneak out of my bedroom, sneak downstairs, and want to get like a half hour of alone time where I make breakfast for my family. And, you know, I usually do that, but um, inevitably my daughter wakes up and runs downstairs, and he wants to make pancakes with me. And so he knows where the flour is, he knows where the mixing bowl is, and he brings them out, and he insists on helping me out, right? And as I, you know, put all the ingredients together, and as I mixes the batter, the only one tool that he can use that she can grasp with her little hands is a tiny little thin chopstick. So he always, she always goes and gets a chopstick, and I'm mixing it around, and she insists on helping me out, and as she does it, she splatters batter all over the place, and I have to clean up afterwards, and I'm always like, girl, just like, leave me alone, you know, but she's always like, you know, all in, you know, all up in my way, and she's doing that, and the question is, like, did we participate together in the, mi- you know, in the mixing of the batter and the making of the pancake? Well, if my daughter knew better, she would know that, well, I guess technically there were two people involved in the preparation of this pancakes, but we, re- we all know that really dad did all the work. But here's what's important. In my mind, when I have the perspective to think back on it, in my mind, as the one who did 99.9% of the work, I would say, yeah, we definitely participated. Because what she did in the moment was turn this drudgery of breakfast making, perhaps, into a sweet moment that I got to share with my daughter. And do you see, when it comes to your work, that that's what God wants with you. When you see every single aspect of your life, especially your work, through the prism of God's hand at work in and through you, it's possible in your work to experience the intimacy of a father who takes joy, who takes joy in working with you, in bringing his kingdom to bear in this world through your industry. And experiencing this intimacy with God and experiencing the security of having God be in your work with you is what we are called to work out of, right? And that is the grace of God that is apparent and at work in our work. And so if you were to experience that, there are two practical implications that I think we can get out of this. 
the implications being that if you understand that it is the hand of God that is at work in your work, it does two things. It keeps you from pride, but it also keeps you from despair. Right? It keeps you from pride because when you know that things are going well with your work, you know that it's the hand of the Lord that is on you. Right? How are you able to develop the abilities that you have? Right? How are you born into the kind of family that could afford to put you through the kind of schooling that you went through to be able to develop the kind of expertise uh, that you have and the skills that you have? Who was the one that, that gave you the kind of personality that you were born with that led you to the particular line of work that you were called to? You may say, no, 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 it was my hard work that got me here. Well, who was the one that gave you the propensity, right, for having the kind of personality that led you to value hard work? How is it that you were born into the kind of family, perhaps, that valued hard work? Was that your doing? No, it was the hand of God that led you to where you are. So he keeps you from pride when things are going well, but... It also keeps you from despair when things aren't going well because you realize also that it was the hand of the Lord that is on you. Now this phrase, the hand of the Lord being on someone, it is a common thread uh, that is throughout the book of Ezra. And what we find is that all throughout history what we see is that God is the one who moves kings and kingdoms right, for the sake of his work. For his kingdom going forward and the building up of his people. Yesterday we had a men's breakfast, and we talked a little bit about um, this uh, this passage here that I want to read for you from uh, Psalm chapter eight. And the psalmist says, "When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him?" Right, the psalmist sees the vast universe, galaxies and galaxies and clusters of galaxies, known and unknown, seen and unseen by the human eye, and he looks, at the, he looks out at this vast universe and he says what? They were created by God's, what? God's fingers. God brought about this glorious creation and for him, that work was as easy as a child playing with Play-Doh with her fingers. And this is the God whose hand is on you. Now, when it comes to pancake creation, as much chaos as my daughter uh, brings about in her so-called participation of the making of the pancakes. But at the end of the day, those pancakes are going to be made. And they're going to be good. You know why? Because I'm committed to the work of and have a great zeal for putting food on the table for my family. It is going to get done. When it comes to the work that God has given to you, in placing the particular desires and abilities and the opportunities that he has given to you to meet the needs. God is going to see to it that the work gets done. 
should keep us from despair when things aren't going well. Now, <clears throat> that should drive our work. When we go into our office every morning, when you open up our laptops, when we are shooting those emails out. But you may at this point say, okay, well, <clears throat> all of that sounds great in theory, but it, you know, how about tomorrow when, it go, when I go to work, I know it's going to be hard to be thinking about all of these things when I'm working on these mind-numbing spreadsheets. When I'm dealing with a colleague who is impossibly difficult to deal with. When I have a supervisor whose expectation of me shifts day by day. When I'm working and trying to clean up the house and I'm wailing from pain from having stepped on yet another Lego and I want to throw my child out of the house. <laughs> what do I do with these frustrations at work? Or you may be saying, I'm driven to the brink. Like, I value the work that I'm doing, but there's just too much of it. I'm afraid of burnout. Right? There's frustrations at work for sure. Right? We saw it in the case of Zerubbabel, right, who headed up the commission of that, that rebuilt the temple. Right? We saw all of the opposition that he had to face right, for decades. And we'll see in the coming chapters, we'll see that this was a case of Ezra as well. And so in your work, right, in your vocational calling, you'll experience frustrations. You're trying to do the work that God has called you to do. You have a clear vision for how you would be contributing to the common good. You know that you have the abilities there. But man, like, there's so much frustration there. And I'm heading towards burnout. How are we going to keep ourselves from burning out, out of frustrations that we experience at work. We saw first what our calling looks like, and secondly, how, are we, how we are to live it out. And lastly, to keep ourselves from burnout, we need to see where our calling is pointing to. Where our calling is pointing to. Now, you may remember in the beginning of the sermon, I had said it is typical of Hebrew narrative literature to omit great amounts of detail, right? If you were to read the Lord of the Rings, for example, you get a vivid picture of what the woods look like and the forestry and all those things, right? That's not the case with Hebrew uh, narrative literature, but here's what it also means. It also means that the detail that we do get is there for a very specific purpose, Right? And so bearing that in mind, uh, look at verse 9 with me. Chapter 7, verse 9, it says, For on the first day of the first month, he began, right, Ezra began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Now here's what's really interesting. The author makes uh, very specific the day that he began to go up. Right? from Babylonia to head to Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about that day, the first day of the first month happened to be the Passover feast. Right? The Passover feast was where they remembered and celebrated God delivering his people out of Egypt. And what scholars would tell you is that they see a clear parallel. Right, Pastor Aaron, in a previous sermon, alluded to this briefly. Scholars see clear parallels between Ezra leading a generation of people out of Babylon into Jerusalem and Moses, right, leading the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land. 
this is a design uh, feature, narrative feature that is baked in in the language uh, that is portrayed here. The clear parallels. What they would also point out, though, is if we see the Bible as one coherent story, is that these stories of deliverance in the Old Testament were actually rehearsals, if you will, and pointer to the great story of the gospel in which Jesus Christ, the true and greater Moses, the true and greater Ezra, led the great exodus, led the great rescue in which he led his people out of the bondage of sin and death and into eternal life in the renewal of the whole world through his work on the cross. And here's what we find. What kept Zerubbabel through the task, to the task, through all of the frustrations, what will keep Ezra to the task through all the frustrations that we will see, and what will keep you and I to the task of the work that God has called us to do, is when we are rehearsing the great rescue story of the Bible in and through our work. How is the gospel going to be made manifest in your work? When we talk about being faithful with our work, most of us just think about evangelizing to our colleagues. Right? That certainly is a part of it. But do you realize that according to the storyline of the Bible, in the very nature of your work, you can showcase the glories of the gospel in the way you do your work? Now, there are a whole series of sermons uh, that can be preached on this topic, but let me put it this way. The gospel story has the capacity to inject purpose and rest to your work. Purpose and rest to your work. Let me talk about purpose real quick. See, almost every line of work, right, unless it is inherently sinful or criminal, can be redeemed and transformed by the storyline of the gospel. And friends, let me tell you this. You want to talk about discipleship? You want to talk about growing in grace? You want to talk about growing as a Christian? There is no uh, better atmosphere, no better uh, venue, no better arena for your growth than in your day-to-day work. Because, friends, it is the work of discipleship to think deeply about your work in light of the gospel story. Like, what are the idols of my industry that hold people captive? How can I work in such a way as to showcase the freedom of the gospel in light of those idolatries? Right? What are some of the tangible ways in which I can do this? What are some of the ways that I can serve my coworkers, boss, and those who report to me? Right? How can I love those in my workplace that are actively hostile to me? How can we together as a company, as an organization, serve the common good, even if that may end up hurting the bottom line of my organization? How can I stand up for those things, even if it costs me my reputation? Right? All of these are ways that we can rehearse the storyline of the gospel through our everyday work. My favorite example when it comes to this, for those of you that took uh, Deuteronomy class with me may remember this example. One of my favorite examples of this happening is through the example of a Guinness Beer Company uh, that's in Ireland. 
And Arthur Guinness, who was the founder of the Guinness Brewing Company, was a practicing, committed Christian, and he actually founded the first Sunday schools in Ireland. And what he did was he saw the idolatry of his industry that would cater to the drunkenness and alcoholism in his country. And so he had this conviction, quote, uh, let me quote this for you. He said, beer, well-respected and rightly consumed, can be a gift of God. It is one of his mysteries, which it was his delight to conceal and the glories of kings to search out, and men to enjoy it, to mark their days and celebrate their moments and stand with their brothers in the face of what life brings. Right? He had this affinity. He said he saw need, right, drunkenness and alcoholism in his country, and he had this affinity towards brewing great beer, and he had the ability to do that. So what does he do? He decided to offer a hearty, less potent alternative to his community. That came the creation of Guinness beer. So much zinc that it actually aided the health of the people that were drinking it. Much less alcohol and the alcohol, the kinds of liquor that were available to the people at the time. But not only that, he went beyond that and said, how can I serve the common good? Right? And so in a time when workers were often exploited, right, his company was one of the first companies in the world to provide benefits for uh, their workers. Right? Uh, there was instituted maternity leave for new moms. He instituted medical plans for his workers. Right? There was a dentist office that was located right there in the brewery right, that the workers could take advantage of. He had generous retirement plans, and you can Google it and find out. These are wonderful things that were unheard of at the time. These were all novel ideas at the time, and really one of the founders he became of what we call workers' rights and benefits. My friends, what was the thing that drove him? What is the thing that is going to drive you? It is a it is a story of the gospel that has a power to imbue purpose to your work. But secondly, and we're going to close with this, it also injects a sense of rest for us. Now, let me read for you just to show you that anything can be redeemed and transformed. I'm going to read a social media post from a pastor friend of mine. It was one of the most moving things I read in a while on Facebook. Uh, he says this, when my, friends, uh, when my kids were little, uh, they'd always insist on, quote-unquote, helping me with whatever I was doing. It was great. But at some point, my patience ran out with all their helping. And so I'd say something like, guys, you've been so helpful. You must be tired. Go play. And daddy will finish this. And he says this, in the Sabbath, God says the same to us. And I'm going to put my name in it. Joe, you've been so helpful. You must be tired go play. Daddy will finish this. And he says, in the Sabbath, we learn to trust in the Father who is always at work and learn not to take ourselves too seriously. And on the day we produce nothing for Jesus, we experience his love most vividly. It is the gospel enacted. See, friends, it is in the gospel that we experience the real work of salvation having been done in Jesus Christ. And it is in the gospel that we are told that we have a Father who is at work to this present day to make the world a better place and drawing us nearer to Himself. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Again, as we said, we get to participate in that work, but ultimately at the end of the day, what we are reminded by the storyline of the gospel is that it is the Father who will finish it, who will see to it that the work gets accomplished. That means that our work does not, at the end of the day, depend on us, and it is only in the storyline of the gospel we are told that, you know what, no matter how little you feel like you've accomplished in your day, you can close that laptop. You can take your glasses off, close that book, and call it a day. Why? Because even when you are not working, it is God himself who is working. All the working that you are striving towards is done. The gospel tells us that God is proud of you not because of the work that you offer up to him, but simply because he is your father. Then that means that even if the whole world looks down on you for not getting as much work done, it is a spiritual discipline of the beloved children of God to say, I'm not going to let the world dictate my working habits. It is the love of the Father that is going to dictate my working habits. And therefore, one day out of the week, at an opportune time, I will close all of my work and I will rest. Because it is in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the work is finished. And all that is left for me is to enjoy the love of my Father and to enjoy the work that He has been gracious enough to call me to participate in. Now, friends, is that true with you? Are you good at resting or are you driven by work? If you find that you are driven by your work, let me encourage you to go back to the foot of the cross. Let God bring joy into your heart with that which is more important. That which drove Mary to Jesus' feet while Martha was letting business overtake her. Again, it may, not feel, it may feel like you're not getting the job done in the moment. It may feel like you're letting people down, but you would have chosen that which is far greater. And friends, as we close, let me encourage you to let Jesus do that work in your heart. And what you would find over time is that he would move you towards the life-giving, meaningful, gospel-driven work that God has called you to do. And let us work out of a sense of love, rest, and security, and purpose that the gospel has for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you uh, for the example of calling that we get um, through the person of Ezra and the work that you've been doing in and through him. God, it is just one person, but you had this extraordinary capacity and capability, God, to work a critical moment in the history of your saving work through this one man. And God, we know that you are at work within each and every one of us in our stories. And God, you long to weave the storyline of our life into the storyline of the good work of the gospel. And that is the work that you are calling us to do. Help us to remember that your hand is on us even as we put our hand to the plow. Help us work out of a sense of purpose and rest that we have 
because of what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. And may that empower the work that you're calling us to. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.